Welcome, fellow survivors, to another episode of A Rail Tour of Post-Apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur exologist, Richard Oliver. This week, we have a rather special episode. Season 1 wrapped up with me visiting my hometown of Haverton, discovering Dr. Casca's remarkable hospital and the madman Aramis de Chambre. I had a break from the podcast planned, but well, something incredible happened. Over the course of season one, a lot of listeners asked me the same question. Why didn't we go to London? The city had been the capital of England, a glorious metropolis, one of the great cities of the world, a hub of wealth, culture and people. Before the apocalypse, London had been home to almost seven and a half million people. And yet we simply missed it out. At the time, it made perfect sense. During the apocalypse, London had suffered genuine catastrophe. Like many big cities, it seemingly attracted disaster. First, there had been the insectoid monsters that had swarmed about the London underground, but eventually they were beaten back. Then a general had attempted a coup, which led to a terrible civil war fought purely in the capital. Vicious fighting street by street between rebel soldiers and those loyal to the elected government. Before the war had even finished, there had been a plague. It burned through the capital. Those who weren't killed outright became hyper-aggressive mutants, trying to destroy any other life form. A handful, possibly just a few hundred, survived without being infected. One of the most vibrant cities in the world had been reduced to a collection of individual apocalyptic survivors. Some of these people tried to leave, but were killed by the soldiers who had been charged with keeping the city under quarantine. It was rumoured that many of those soldiers were still there, maintaining the quarantine, vowing to follow their orders until the very end, or at least until the government returned. To be blunt, London wasn't worth visiting. It was pointless and potentially extremely dangerous. There were far more important, far more inhabited places to visit. Many large and important cities suffered similar fates. Karachi, Rome, Seoul. And the only additional significance is that I am English. Arguably other places suffered far worse. After us would come others, the central government authority. They would go to London and salvage what they could. That wasn't our job. So, if London is so insignificant, why am I talking about it at all? Well, that changed when we received a politely worded message from the Wade Adler Company asking if we wouldn't mind looking into something for them. While the train and its mission falls under the aegis of the Central Government Authority, it is the Wade Adler Company who actually paid for a lot of it. Knowing the CGA's love of thrift, the train would be somewhat less luxurious if they were footing the bill. Even so, had it just been the company asking, we might have refused. But the CGA itself was eager for us to help the company in this matter, so it was settled. We were going to London. While we made the long journey from the northeast of England to London, we speculated about what it was that the Wade Adler Company wanted. Was it potentially devastating secrets of international statecraft that had remained hidden in some office of MI6? Was some immensely world-changing invention collecting dusk in a laboratory? Had they discovered vast oil fields under St Paul's Cathedral? After one too many drinks, I wildly claimed that the Wade Adler Company wanted to go to Greenwich and steal the concept of time itself. As I feel if you're going to be wrong, you should be really wrong. Disappointingly, Elizabeth Lizzie Cooper, the Wade Adler Company's social media consultant, spoiled the fun by simply telling us what they wanted. The last will and testament of Sebastian Wade, one of the founders of the Wade Adler Company, Eight days before we received the request to travel to London, Sebastian Wade had suffered what at first appeared to be a stroke, 
what was soon revealed he had actually been poisoned. Sebastian was still alive, but in a coma and nobody expected him to ever wake from it. And already his relatives seemed to be getting ready to fight for the company, or at least Sebastian Wade's part of it. This would scarcely seem too important, but given that the Wade Adler Company was the largest and most powerful company in existence, as well as the single biggest employer in the world, the status of his ownership was a matter of international significance. There had even been some rather distressing talk about settling the matter outside of the courtroom, and given that these people commanded huge fortunes and private armies, nobody wanted to get out of hand. This issue had been burning away in the background for some time, as Wade had stated publicly that he had made no will since before the apocalypse, and didn't trust any of his potential heirs not to kill him, so he wouldn't make a new one. The company would desperately get their hands on it before Wade died, so they wouldn't be plagued by years of battle for control of the company. The CGA hoped that the finding of Wade's will would help set in the matter relatively amicably, and if nothing else would give them a legal basis to support one candidate. And it seemed there wasn't much difference between any of the interested parties. All of them were greedy, ruthless, business-minded types, who would definitely poison someone to get what they wanted. The matter of the criminal investigation over who had poisoned Wade was kind of forgotten about in all the excitement. So, hopefully, we would avert a potential war and prevent unnecessary turmoil and instability. Plus, the Wade Adler Company had made some big promises about large rewards if we undertook the mission, and they would probably double that were we successful. The possibility did exist, that it would all be for nothing. Wade's will might not even exist, or we might not be able to find it, or it was destroyed in the apocalypse, or even accidentally shredded by a distracted office worker. Originally, it had been planned to be a completely Wade Adler-specific mission, but once we had decided to go to London, a lot of people realised that they actually wanted to have a look too. At the front of the queue was Annette Vasca, the rescuer of imperiled cultural artefacts. While the English habit of going round the world and stealing bits of art and antiques they took a shine to is morally dubious at best, it does make London a prime spot for Vasca. But there were lots of others who wanted the opportunity to go through every gallery, laboratory and university to see what could be salvaged. And things only got worse when it was revealed where exactly Lizzie Cooper was planning to go, the National Strategic Archive. The name is a trifle dull, and some say that is intentional, but it was where for centuries the English government had stored its gold, and while global economics had moved beyond gold bars locked in vaults, it still held a certain allure. Why should such a place have Sebastian Wade's will? Well apparently the government's gold hadn't taken up too much space in the extremely secure vaults, and so they took on other customers, who wanted a safe place for their valuables, including the prestigious law firm Stone and Drake, the law firm used by Sebastian Wade. Of course, virtually all of the customers of the archive were gone, from the English government down to Stone and Drake, but hopefully the will remained. Personally, I'm not overly obsessed with hoarding gold and money. Such things are made to be spent, not saved. Although it is true, I very much like the things gold can buy. It seemed like half of those on board wanted to go into London, but the captain took charge of the situation and made some sensible limitations, and also set some strict rules about exactly what was going to happen. Much to the disappointment of some, general looting was right out. And what about me? Was I going to England's fabled capital? Yes, I would, although this wasn't really my idea. The Wade Adler Company were actually very keen that I joined their party. After all, I am a journalist of sorts and an independent witness to make sure they didn't just make up some new will to suit their own purposes. I was originally hesitant. You see, I suspected the experience of being in London 
would be genuinely horrific. War, disease and worse had stalked the city for decades. I imagined a city of corpses and monsters. I had never actually been to London, and my only real sense of the city was from books, films and television shows, and I was worried I wouldn't be able to handle seeing it in its current state. After some negotiations with the way down the company, I finally agreed to join them. I shan't disclose exactly what my compensation was, but let's just say the selection of spirits would greatly improve on board the train. Colt was also going to come along, who was to make sure, you know, I wasn't killed. Zulfia, however, had decided not to come along. The last time she had been in London, it had been in an alternate timeline, where her and 5,000 of Napoleon's victorious troops marched through the city, and she thought it would be too upsetting to see the city in a non-Napoleonic state. Instead, she planned to stay on board the train and watch classic television programmes set in London. In the end, three separate groups would venture into London. The Wade Adler Company, whose only concern was to get Sebastian Wade's will, and Ned Vasca and her team would visit as many galleries and museums as they could, and a final team that had been tasked by the CGA to investigate the last days of the English government by exploring Downing Street and the Houses of Parliament. The CGA was always very proactive in ensuring their legitimacy and authority. They wanted to be seen as the rightful inheritors of all the previous world governments, and part of this was picking up where the old governments had left off. In Profile Sebastian Albert Wade, co-founder of the Wade Adler Company. With his recent illness, interest has peaked in this reclusive and interesting man, and we thought it would be a good idea to run a short profile about him. Sebastian was born into a prosperous family. The Wade family had a history of successful bankers, while his mother's side of the family, the Devonniers, were an ancient aristocratic family with ties to the Windsors, the Habsburgs, the Hollandsollands, and just about every other royal family in Europe, and were infamous as always being one step ahead of the guillotine, firing squads and peasant uprisings. They were great survivors, a trait Sebastian seemed to have inherited. Sebastian had a life typical of the moderately rich, and quasi-aristocratic, an expensive education which led to a prestigious university and he settled into a comfortable job moving money from one place to another. Sebastian's reputation at this time was, was as a good-natured, unambitious, mild hedonist, with his job being far down the list of priorities. And this continued to be the case well into his late 30s, and what seems to have changed him was the death of his father and coming into possession of a large fortune. While many had expected Sebastian to fritter away the money on parties and fast cars, this wasn't considered too much of a problem, as he could afford to do that for the rest of his life. In what seemed to many a bizarre move, he founded a company with mathematician and stockbroker Jessica Adler, and silent partner Patrick Carroll, a man so reclusive he did not want his name reflected in the name of the company. For years their company was a bizarre and unpredictable creation, constantly reinvented itself, sometimes seemingly working in finance management and at others making cutting-edge virtual reality equipment, occasionally finding tremendous short-term profit and very often flirting with bankruptcy. To the business world, the company and its founders were a joke. Then the apocalypse happened, which was the start of their real success. The whole world was overturned, companies were destroyed, countries fell apart, and yet the Wade Adler Company survived it all. More importantly, the Sebastian Wade who emerged from the apocalypse was very much a different man. A man with seemingly endless energy and determination, constantly taking over companies that had failed during or after the apocalypse. Wade had always been very cagey about what happened to him during the apocalypse, telling vague and hard to disprove stories about fleeing from various dangers. 
Wade has published three autobiographies, each of which was clearly a work of fiction, and all of which had drastically different accounts of his life, and this has only added to his air of mystery. After the apocalypse, the Wade Adler Company seemed to be everywhere and doing everything. Construction, telecommunications, arms manufacturing, every city on the world was desperate to do business with them. It's hard to overstate the importance the company now had in the world, and the recovery, such as it is, from the apocalypse. Even so, Sebastian Wade never let the world forget that he was running a business, not a charity, and he intended to make money rebuilding the world. Wade's personal life has been similarly complicated. He has had two wives and three husbands, and even though each marriage ended in divorce, acrimony and one attempted murder, he always seemed keen to find another spouse. Wade has been openly critical of all of his children, and many of his other relatives and long-term friends and business partners. Famously, Wade said of his children that he was proud of their, quote, all-consuming selfishness, arrogance and cruelty, but terribly ashamed of their lack of intelligence, competence and punctuality, end quote. And it has long been suggested that he looks to his grandchildren and or possibly adopting an heir to take over his stake in the vast company. Back to the narrative. It seemed like someone on board thought we were going into a place that would be more dangerous than the places we normally go to, and there was a brief session explaining the dangers that we could possibly face. First was the lone survivor types, people who had gotten through all the dangers the city had thrown at them. These people tend to be a little bit jumpy, judging everything that moved as a threat. These actual people weren't going to be too much of a problem in a fight, but they usually made some very nasty traps, and they were a danger. Next, the hyper-aggressive mutants. It was considered unlikely that any were still alive. In similar cases, mutants did not take good care of themselves, and most likely starvation would have finished them all off. Then there was the soldiers. The ones supposedly left in place to enforce the quarantine, and were rumoured to still be at their posts. Despite it being decades since they had received any orders, supplies, or wages. I was sceptical of anyone being so committed, but others on board were less doubting, and some initial reconnaissance done by our scouts suggested there was activity around the quarantine line. Then there was the standard, be careful, don't wander off speech that we're all so familiar with. As the Wade Adler Company were paying for all this, we even got special equipment. Bulletproof vests, torches, GPS trackers. This stuff is always on board, but most of us aren't valuable enough to warrant it. Certainly in my limited role as a podcaster, I don't normally qualify for a bulletproof vest. As the teams assembled all their various equipment, I stood anxiously, slightly out of place, as I had already packed my notebook and pens, and the bulletproof vest looked quite incongruous under my tweed jacket. Coulter had insisted I wear the vest, but for the first time did not offer me a gun. Altogether we were an odd group, the well-groomed, attractive, if boring-looking Wade Adler Company employees, the eclectic madness of Annette Vesca's team with its library-meets-roller-derby-enthusiast aesthetic, and finally... The team of CGA personnel wearing overalls, sensible walking shoes, and enough firepower to bring down an ADAT. There were also people like Colt, your semi-professional soldier of fortune type, who looked like an unbelievably cool loner hero, but was now being forced to work in a team. All of these were working with the Wade Adler Company. The train had stopped a safe distance from the large concrete slabs that comprised the perimeter of London, dropped in place as part of the quarantine efforts. There was no sign of the soldiers who supposedly enforced this quarantine, but that didn't mean they weren't there. There were only four ways through the perimeter, and if soldiers did exist, most of them would be there. But they weren't the only ways into London, not really. 
The city was crisscrossed with tunnels and inevitably some of them went under the perimeter. Even with the military forces the old government could bring to bear, a complete quarantine of a city the size of London could not realistically be carried out. We found a suitable tunnel that was once part of the London Underground and blasted our way in. Concrete had been poured into the actual stations, and this would have worked on your average Londoner trying to flee the city. It was a minor inconvenience to us. Once we got inside the city, we intended to be as quiet as possible, not wanting to attract attention from anyone and anything that might be there, but out of the city, we could be as loud as we wanted. Breaking open these tunnels did remind me of our journey through the Continental Link Tunnel and the shadow monsters that lived within, but, and spoiler alert here, they weren't any in these tunnels. Still, I did not enjoy being in the tunnel. It was dark and damp, and I was constantly worried about the tunnel collapsing or coming across some rodents of unusual size, but eventually we made it back to the surface without incident. To be honest, London was even worse than I had expected. Thankfully, if suspiciously, there were few dead bodies to be seen, but the city was in a bad state. I have seen a lot of devastated cities, and in terms of appearance, London was up there with the worst. It wasn't the most damaged, as, for example, Moscow was completely destroyed, with the only evidence of anything having been there, a very large, flat square of tarmac. But in London, you could see the remains, the ruins, toppled monuments, skyscrapers reduced to burned-out husks, and worse. A person with no prior knowledge of London would know that it had once been a great city, and something truly terrible had happened there. While no one else in the three teams was English, it affected just about everyone, and an oppressive silence took hold, and we walked on, barely making a sound. It wasn't long before the group split up. Vasquez's team, heading for what you could call a great international repository of human art, culture, and history, or a warehouse full of stolen property that was the English Museum. The CGA headed off to Downing Street to see what they could salvage of the old government's last plans and my group headed to the financial district, the curiously named City of London, which of course is located in a city named London. We walked past derelict buildings which once housed people who dealt with billions, even trillions, and while the world economy had recovered a lot since the apocalypse, it's still nowhere near that level of capitalism. But so much of that wealth didn't even exist anymore, if it ever really did. Gigantic fortunes held on spreadsheets that became worthless in minutes. People today like to hold on to something a little more substantial than spreadsheets. After all, it took the CGA years to get people back on a cash economy. It was then that we reached it, the National Strategic Archive. It was a grand building, a couple of centuries old, borrowing any architectural style going that I thought could make it look more impressive. Clearly, it had taken a few knocks, but it was still standing. Elizabeth Lizzie Cooper was smiling in a more genuine way than I had ever seen from her before. Let's get inside, she said, just as the sniper opened fire. The term sniper was quite generous, as I did not have great aim, and everyone managed to take cover without being hit. Colt had dragged me into a doorway, so I was out of the line of fire. While Colt was a good shot, he too wasn't a sniper. His specialty was with pistols. So other people on our team returned fire. Half a dozen shots were directed at our attacker, and everyone waited. Did they get him? I asked Colt. The mercenaries in our group shouted a conversation across the street at each other, sometimes using complicated hand gestures that I could not fathom. No, we didn't get him, said Colt. And then he told me the plan. We were going to move together as quickly as possible and head towards the archive and take the fight to our attacker. One of our snipers, Eva, would stay poised ready to fire should the opportunity arise. 
Colt wasn't happy about the noise that had already been made. The sound of the shots would carry across the city, and if there was anyone listening, they could be on their way. You want me to run towards someone shooting at me? I asked incredulously. Colt nodded, but added, Well, he's probably not aiming specifically at you. That was little comfort. Eva opened fire and everyone ran. I kept up as best I could, and I was sure Colt was keeping pace with me and could easily have sprinted away. Everyone made it. Like I said, his aim was not good. While the archive still seemed relatively secure, that was not going to stop the Wade Adler Company, and they had brought an assortment of tools to get us through anything. Lizzie took one look at the secure metal doors. Blow it, she said. There's no point in being quiet now. And one small explosion later, we were inside. While a lot of pre-apocalypse religions have seen the numbers of the faithful fall, there have been a number of new religions that have flourished in this new world. There's a rather unpleasant group that have a number of communities across the world who believe that humankind should have been wiped out by the apocalypse, and they want to work towards that result, a world without humans. Members of their religion are supposed to believe that they only exist to bring about the extinction of humankind. Their group is currently split on the best way forward, with some believing fierce debate is sufficient to convince non-believers, while others hold to more direct action, more violent action, and a small group believes that another species, possibly ants, should be elevated to de facto top species. As yet, this group has had very little success. There is a religion that was founded in the darkest days of the apocalypse that revolves around the worship of an unexploded atomic bomb, known to its followers as the Great Protector. Now to many people, the idea of worshipping such a thing is a bit ridiculous, and would peg these believers as the worst demented cult followers. However, the religion is very forward-thinking and progressive, urging its followers to do good in the world, while insisting on no discrimination based on gender, sexuality, nationality, or really, anything. To outsiders, such a religion could be imagined as very warlike and hostile, rather than the peaceful, pacifist group that it is. It is a well-known phenomenon that very rarely, when you look in a mirror, instead of your normal reflection, you are confronted by a twisted, sinister-looking doppelganger. With bright red eyes, and even while you remain motionless, the doppelganger seems to advance towards you, while you feel a growing urge to move closer to the mirror. Now we all know... That all you need to do is look away from the mirror and you'll be fine, and not see that doppelganger again for a couple of months. But a group in Southern California are urging people not to look away. Surviving members of this group all claim to have stared at their doppelganger for hours at a time, and this has led them to uncover deep personal truths about themselves that make them happier and better functioning people. I describe the people who advocate this as surviving members of the group as a number of people who go through the process do not survive. While their nominal leader, India Kaspau, refused to say how many people die, she did say that statistically, the odds were in your favour, and most only suffer major and irreparable damage to their eyes. The mercenaries fanned out, quickly finding and disabling elaborate booby traps. It was not a surprise that a lone survivor would have taken residence in a building like this. It seemed so secure. I walked slowly, carefully taken in my surroundings, convinced I would be killed by a hidden grenade, have my foot caught in a bear trap, or something else equally horrific happened to me. Find the shooter, said Lizzie. We'll head downstairs. Most of the mercenaries made their way upstairs, just Colt and a couple of others sticking with us. 
We encountered increasingly elaborate doors and other security measures, but they barely slowed us down. In a country like England, even the best pre-apocalypse security was based on the assumption that sooner or later, the police would turn up. And that wasn't going to happen now. While there were a number of security devices that worked without electricity, almost Indiana Jones-style booby traps, the archive still had power. Presumably, some renewable energy source had been installed to keep the building safe. Just as we blew a hole in the 11th door, Lizzie's radio beeped. It was the mercenaries. They had found the person who had been taking shots at them, and he had been dealt with. At the time, I had assumed this was mercenary lingo for brutally killed, but I later learned they had used a taser. But there was another problem. It turned out the rumours of the soldiers were 100% accurate, and they were closing in. There were at least a couple of dozen of them, and they were converging on the archive. Lizzie's orders were to hold them off while we got on with the work, sending all the mercenaries back to the entrance. Moments later, we could all hear the sounds of gunfire. Last door, said Lizzie, smiling at me. Would you like to? Lizzie held out the detonator to me. I flipped the switch and blasted a large hole in the wall. We walked into a very large and very long corridor, with small corridors shooting off to smaller vaults. But it was this vault that held the government's gold. I couldn't quite believe what I was looking at. Gold. So. Much. Gold. I have professed before to not being too interested in gold or money, and that was the idiotic talk of a man who had never stood before enough gold bricks to build an impressive detached house. And that was just the first room. Altogether, I could build an entire neighbourhood out of gold. Looking at it all made me feel drunk. When I finally pulled myself together, I noticed that no one else was interested in the gold, as they, unlike me, were professionals. I slowly headed towards where Lizzie and her colleagues had assembled around a heavy steel door. I assumed they had found the vault belonged to Stone and Drake. That was until I passed the vault that belonged to Stone and Drake. I stood staring at the dust-covered door that was clearly marked as the property of the law firm. The vault Lizzie and her colleagues were interested in was far more impressive and wasn't labelled at all. And as I reached the group, they were discussing how best to open it, as for once, Lizzie didn't want to use explosives. One of her colleagues was making slow progress with a complicated-looking drill apparatus. What's going on, I asked, a terrible feeling taking over me. You're not here for the will, are you? Lizzie shook her head and sighed in an exaggerated manner, like she was talking to an annoying child who wouldn't stop asking ridiculous questions. Richard, there is no will. You want the gold, I said, and backed away quickly. I turned to run, when her colt hit me with his rifle. It wasn't really as bad as all that, more like a forceful shove, just enough to stop me. Still, he'd not be off my feet, and it hurt. I looked up at Colt, and he looked extremely embarrassed about the whole situation, and I realised that Colt hadn't come just to keep me safe. I don't want the gold. We didn't come all this way just for gold, said Lizzie, seemingly outraged at the suggestion she was anything as low as a simple thief. What do you want then, I demanded, finally able to speak. Behind Lizzie came the sound of metal bolts moving, and the vault slid open. I want England, said Lizzie, stepping into the vault. Colt nudged me forward, and I followed her. It was a television studio. I walked forward completely puzzled, past TV cameras and recording equipment. A stage set up to look like a newsroom. Another had a podium. Another with several desks and comfortable chairs. You wanted a television studio, I asked barely believing what I was seeing. 
Around me, the Wade Adler companies were in a flurry activity, unpacking boxes and turning on equipment. This is the ACP, said Lizzie in a way of explanation. And there it was, the old ACP logo, presumably the last operational ECP studio in the country, in the world even. The ECP, or English Central Publications, had been a collection of different media outlets for almost 200 years, funded by taxes, but separate to and independent of the government. Behind me, some of Lizzie's colleagues opened up the next section of the vault. And at first, this was even more confusing, until I realised what I was looking at. To my left, in a glass cabinet, were four extremely old, very fragile-looking documents. They were copies of the Magna Carta made in the 13th century. Next were paintings. My knowledge of fine art is not great, but I recognised the Turner, something by Francis Bacon. There was also something that looked like a Picasso. I spotted George Orwell's notebook, and the computer Alan Turing and others had developed to crack Nazi codes in World War II. And next, there was the crown jewels. This vault is England, said Lizzie. What's left of it anyway? It's art, it's culture, it's history. The English government brought their most precious things down here to keep them safe. Lizzie seemed as drunk by all this as I had been by the gold. She explained that even more valuable than manuscripts and paintings, the government had brought their authority down here. Everything from the ECP to headed paper used by the Foreign Office. The idea being that this vault contained everything a person would need to recreate the English government. The person who owns this vault is England, said Lizzie triumphantly. The CGA are wasting their time at Downing Street. This is where the power is. It can't be that easy, I argued. What about Parliament or the law? You just can't take over England so easily. Well, there is one more thing, said Lizzie. She pushed me aside and walked to the now open case that displayed the crown jewels. Seven crowns rested delicately on velvet. I like this one. She picked up a diadem and placed it on her head. Some of the others are a bit over the top, don't you think? We'll leave it there for this week, with the dreadful possibility that Elizabeth Lizzie Cooper, social media consultant for the Wade Adler Company, is now the Queen of England. At the End of the Line was written and recorded by Richard Oliver. As you may have noticed, we now have some theme music, as I'm finally getting my act together and sorting out little things like that. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savon podcast, which I highly recommend. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at postapocpodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com.